You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, guys, we're going to jump right into this. we got Mr. Mitt Wardlaw. Mitt, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. How about you, Adam? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. You know, I was outside today, uh, this morning, getting my wife and kids ready to to go eat lunch with my mother-in-law, and there was a cardinal just singing his heart out in the tree right out in my front yard, and I was like, buddy, you sing it. Spring is here. Just keep telling me. Yeah, similar story this morning. Um, Don't break my heart. Yours is a turkey goblin, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say city. I live in the city, so I, the best I could do is a cardinal. And you're gonna tell me the story of a long beard, aren't you? <laughs> That'll be a story for another time. Oh man! Well, guys and gals that are listening, we're gonna do something that um, we haven't covered in all the in in the years of the Land and Legacy podcast. And it probably comes for one main reason is I just felt like a complete – I still I still don't feel extremely comfortable. I have enough knowledge, I guess, to be dangerous, but I'm not real knowledgeable on it um, because it's so in-depth and I've been so involved in or so focused on native plants and understanding native plants, invasive species, that going underground has not been something that I've been incredibly focused on. And I think over the course of this soil – health or soil series um, you'll understand why I don't get involved in a lot of the underground health of the soil but Mitt if you want to jump in introduce yourself I guess I should first say we met you in 2017 or 28 2018 and uh, we worked with your on your property down in Mississippi and uh, got I've shared the story of of that day with many people um of the day in the swamp with the brand new pair of danner boots going i think they're going to get broken today and we waited and waited oh my goodness that was a a swampy place yeah no no doubt about it no that's good the um i will say this before we get started um i've listened to quite a few of your podcasts and you always have some really interesting guest speakers and y'all talk very knowledgeable about your your subjects and very entertaining podcast and then you invite me to talk about the subject of <laughs> hey, the most boring <laughs> uninteresting subject that we could possibly talk about so how do i appreciate that 
<laughs> well, I'm sorry, but that is kind of right up your realm. So I, I guess it's just uh, just the way the cookie crumbles. But we'll make sure that we have you back on. And, and I guess we can say this is a little bit of your your fault here because uh, you had a you know with with your hunting season you had a heck of a year, and I didn't even know about it till just a few weeks ago. So. Um, yeah. We could have been talking about that uh, back then, so maybe maybe that's not all on me. But yeah, I uh, I so what I was gonna say was is just we're gonna talk about soil health and and this during this podcast we're really trying to don't don't stop before you hit the switch over to the next podcast because you're not interested in soil health. I think a lot of guys probably aren't interested because it's way over our head, including myself, a lot of times when people start talking about it. And um, I think that really, you know, a lot of us have been in the process of throw seed out on the ground, rake up the ground, throw the seed out, cover it up, and be done with it. And um, so many times in our consulting business, I see guys who are mismanaging a food plot or not really giving it the the uh, attention it needs and then going over and talking about expanding other food plots or creating other food plots and where we should really just focus on how to maximize the acres we have in food plots. And so, Mitt, that's where you're coming in today. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, yeah, um, well, I appreciate you having me on. Um, so a little bit of introduction. Again, my name is Mitt Wardlaw. We uh, I'm, I'm live here in Mississippi, based out of Starkville, Mississippi, and I'm an owner in uh, a company called Southern Ag Consulting. And what we do is – our clientele base are, are growers, farmers, and we get paid to assist them in making management decisions throughout the season. So we're, we're on their farm and in their fields once a week, every week throughout the growing season and making management decisions in weed, insect, disease management, variety hybrid selection, irrigation scheduling, fertility recommendations, um, anything that we can see that is limiting yield and ways that we can increase profits. That's, that's basically the way that I like to think about our job. We're profit consultants. How can we increase productivity across the agriculture landscape? And um, so we have a lot of tools in our toolbox that, that we use, uh, a lot of technology that we use to, to do that. And, um, and so, yeah, so I'm, I'm one of those guys that the line between work and what I love to do on my playtime, that line is very blurry. So I, I love what I do. Um, it crosses over into uh, our, our hobbies. I've got a, another company called Mid-South Resource Management that we do um, basically land management on the, 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 the recreational and forestry side anywhere between herbicide applications um, for site prep mid rotation native warm season grass establishment prescribed fire um, so we have a lot of fun um, during those seasons too so that's that's basically me and um, I've got went to Mississippi State's land-grant institution here in agriculture and uh, I've always been interested in in habitat management and I've learned a lot since I've been out of school, just basically the, the school of hard knocks. Got to, uh, got to observe a lot of things that work and, more importantly, a lot of things that don't work. And through that, um, I've just built a library in my mind of 
techniques, tools, um, procedures that have been successful. So um, that's where we are. There you go. Well, that was great. Um, yeah, you you do it. You're in the field a lot of days out of the year, I'm sure. Um, when you look at crop farmers and, and your clientele that you're dealing with, how what would you think is the most common practice that people do that ultimately hurts them in the long run or lowers their amount of profit? Is there something in particular where they don't, let's just say they don't think about, uh, don't think about anything below the ground or a certain practice? Uh, and we'll kind of shift this right into food plots with that, with whatever you say. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, especially these subjects that we're, that we're talking about today, uh, it's oftentimes, you know, viewed as very complex and it, it is. And in reality it is, but I think oftentimes we overthink it. Um, we have found, and I'm speaking from my, my, uh, consulting company, my agricultural consult consulting company, we found more success in just blocking and tackling, not any fancy plays, not any, you know, groundbreaking techniques or, or, really advances in in technology our biggest successes have been in just blocking and tackling 80 grit management that's right and and what i mean by that and and kind of play into your your question was probably the places that we make the biggest mistakes across the landscape is in water management And, and that can mean a lot of different things but getting water off the landscape in, in, a, in a proper context is way more important than putting water on, meaning that drainage is probably one of the biggest limiting factors, at least in our, in our area. Um, drainage, we, we lose more production from poor drainage than probably anything else, more than fertility, more than, you know, hybrid selection, more, more than anything. And, and that's probably the one that's overlooked, um, the the most is is just proper drainage of the fields and you know whether it be a tillage practice that interferes with that or row configuration or whatever the, the case may be um that's probably the most limiting factor and you just described one of the most common questions i get in food plots is what can i plant that grows in a little bit wet soil yep that's right and so the 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 easier question to answer is what can we do to make that soil less wet? Yeah. And oftentimes it requires a little bit of equipment in most cases, but, um, you know, just as simple as, is removing the high between the low spot in the field and the ditch. Oftentimes it's all that's required. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting. I think a lot of guys have, yeah, because in our travels, in our consulting business, we deal with guys from across the, basically from Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, East, and uh, a lot of times those food plots that, <laughs> I, I'm going to just base an average out here that it seems like most of those food plots that people are trying to get grow in those low spots are usually pretty small. It's like, yeah. God, oh, we're just going to elect to leave put our resources somewhere else and let this grow up in more of a wetland bedding area maybe instead of trying to do the food plots but i think one of the one of the key correlations i want to make throughout this whole podcast series is mitts working with growers or 
production ag guys who probably, uh, uh, let me make another assumption here, that most of their farms are generally some sort of production, uh, some sort of crop, and other ca- and other farmers are going to have ground that's more cattle pasture than it is timber. Uh, is that a fair assumption, Mitt? Yeah, and see, my, my clientele, um, I mean, every one of them in, in, enjoy the recreational side of, of their landscape. So that's, that's a, a very important component of our business and, and our work. I mean, because it's important to our clients. Yeah. So I, and I guess I'll probably hit this point during every podcast in this series, and it may be two, maybe three, maybe four, depending on how much you guys like this series on soil. But the production farmers are managing lots of acres. Most of their properties are set up to where it's in some sort of crop. It's some sort of cash um, driven commodity. It could even be a, a could be even a pine plantation, but they're managing large amounts of their acreage to be put into some sort of cash commodity, whether it be a short term commodity like corn, soybeans, or long term like pines. Most of these guys are managing long term and working every acre into some sort of cash return. Food plot guys are most of the time, and this is the ongoing question that I ask people, let's look at the ratio, and most people are always less than 5% of their properties in food plots. So it's two totally different ratios of uh, land use. And so for you guys like Mitt, it really does have to be productive. Um, If you have acres and acres and acres that fail as much as food plots fail, they're out of business or the farm gets sold. So, Mitt, I, I think your understanding of the importance of soil health or the importance of understanding how to grow crops is exactly why you're on this podcast today. Yeah. yeah. So let's go ahead and jump into, I guess, understanding the, the importance of soil management and crop and food plotting. Yeah, and so... Kind of to uh, expound on what you what you said just then on uh, on you know on my consulting side and uh, production agriculture, we can't afford to fail. I mean, it's expensive to put a crop in, and we have to produce from a monetary standpoint more than it costs to produce the crop. Obviously, yeah. Um, there's variability across the landscape, and there's areas that are more productive than others. But if we get too many acres that are, are unproductive to the level where they can't produce a profit, then that's cost prohibitive, obviously. And we're not in business very long. Yeah. So what, what we had to be good at is letting every single acre stand alone. We, we have we're getting a bad habit on production agriculture to farm on the averages. But this technology has showed us from a yield uh, map standpoint, we have the capability now as we harvest a, a field, we can see the variability on a map of yield. And so if we had, for instance, a 60-acre soybean field that averaged 60 bushels um, an acre, conventional wisdoms would say maybe you have 45 bushel average on or 45 bushels in the low areas 
maybe up to 70 in the high. Well, that's not the case. In most situations, it may be 15 to 20 bushels on the low side and all the way up to 100 on the high. So the variability is 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 very extensive across most of the landscape that, that we consult in. So wow. to move that into a, uh, uh, you know, how does that relate to food plots? We've had to get good at considering all the factors that determine increased production or better production. And it's not always soil related. Um, it's not always fertility related. Um, so we had to be good at looking across the landscape and identifying every limiting factor, if you will, and start coming up with solutions to answer to that. And so that's really the premise behind the success of, of our company. And then when you have that, that same mindset, thinking through a recreational tracks landscape, whether it be choosing the sites, timber management, food plot production, it's still the same applies. Ah, gotcha. Okay, that that's the very good points. So when you're looking at your crop ground and and you're kind of weighing out the the problems that are occurring and how they're lowering the yield, talk jump put your put your deer hunter food plotter hat on. And I know, so you've seen a lot of acres, so I'm sure you've seen a lot of acres that are even hunting acres. So what are some of the problems, the most common problems that you see with guys in the food plot aspect? Yeah. So um, probably some of the most limiting factors on, on, from a food plot standpoint would be some of the same ones that we've, we've already talked about and, and certainly very similar to what we see in, um, in the production row crop. But from a food plot standpoint, specifically, um, you know, poor seed bed preparation, um, you know, start and clean, um, good seed soil contact, very, very important. Simple things like uh, cedar or planter calibration, you know, make sure we're getting the right amount of seed out there. Not too much, not too little. That will certainly affect productivity, um, you know, regardless of what what crop we're talking about. Um Seeding depth is, is oftentimes, and we learned those hard lessons um, planting native warm season grass where that the seeding depth is, is very, very critical. Um, a good rule of thumb on seeding depth, well, I like to think of it as, as 10, 10x the seed diameter and you will rarely go wrong. Uh, that's just a good, easy way to think about that, um, but, but very, very important. Gotcha. Um, not understanding... Um, you know, herbicide options and sprayer calibration. Um, that's always big. That's a, that's a, it's, it's not rocket science, but it is something that, that we all need to educate ourselves on a little bit better for the effectiveness of, of weed control and doing a good job there and being good stewards of, of our herbicide applications. Um, seed mixes. Um, I'm kind of cynical a little bit on, on these seed mixes. Oftentimes we see um, some of these seed mixes that um, these seed manufacturers are putting out oftentimes contradict the management between species and species. Um, so, for example, the, the maturity date on some part of the mix may be a month later than the maturity date on another that could interfere with your, your next rotation into your crop. So, because on my particular farm, I'm planting, you know, cereal grains and clovers in the fall. 
And then as soon as they mature, I'm planting back into a summertime crop in those same fields. And so the, the seed mixes, I, I need to be really careful about that to make sure the maturity is the same, um, where I maybe can manage with a herbicide on one particular species. It contradicts another. Those are some watch outs that, uh, that you know, you need to be looking for. I, th- I think that's one of the big things that I think about with these blends, because we, we, we plant a lot of blends, especially in the fall. And it seems like we've ran into this because we're always like, when I plant something, I kind of just want to see how the first year we planted Legacy, it was like, let's drill it. And I, we didn't even plant till late in the into in in May or June before most of it had matured just because we wanted to see what the life cycle of all those plants looked like. And I think a lot of times trying to get that window in where, uh, especially if you're doing annual clovers, it seems like where crimson clover comes on a lot earlier than balance or bursine comes on. And, uh, and so if you mix those together, which we do in one of our blends, you you probably if you want to plant early in the spring for your soybeans you're probably missing out uh on on the full productiveness of one of those annual clovers cuz you're going to have to kill it um to to get those soybeans off to a good start precisely yeah yeah um so we're trying to keep this layman's terms trying to keep this very simple um so let's you know soil health is such a, a hot topic right now in a food plot world um and I know I've sent over some notes. Um, people may laugh because they realize I've got notes for this podcast, which I usually don't have anything in front of me. I just talk. But on this podcast, we've got notes, and I sent them over to you, and you answered. So, and you, the way you answer is like, well, I got to ask you on that one because that's what I want people to realize or start thinking about. So, soil health um, can we can quickly get in the weeds. So, let's explain why a deer hunter should care about soil health. And before you answer, I'll say we should always care about the land health. As a as a hunter, as a as a a human being, we should always strive to make a healthier environment. Um, but I feel like sometimes I think people probably get into the soil health thing and think that we're going to change the world. So, Mitt, take it away. Yeah. So, well, number one, soil health. Um, I'm I'm very cynical about that that terminology. Even. Yeah. Um, it, it it means so many things to so many people, and oftentimes, when soil health is mentioned, especially in my profession, um, in the agricultural world, um, soil health is generally used by people that may never even held a, a fistful of dirt, <laughs> or even more likely, they've never owned an acre of it. Yeah, and so you know, it's it's one thing to you know stand in uh, in, in on concrete and ivory tower and talk about soil health, but much differently when it's applicable and you're out there uh, trying to make a living on the landscape um, and, and practically speaking about soil health, that's, that's something that's, that's much different. And so to your point, we should all care about the health of the soil, if you will. Um, soil is a living and dynamic ecosystem. Um, it's the basic building block of, of life period. Um, it's what houses and transfers all our nutrients into the plants and then transfers those nutrients into the animals um, that we enjoy to eat, both the plants and the animals. Um, so it's the, the, the soil as, as a makeup, it's made up of a, of a complex factor of 
different physical, chemical, and the biological properties and all its components. Um, so when any of these components get out of balance, the productivity of the soil lessens. And so when we talk about soil health, what I guess probably the easiest way to think about that would be related to the human health. I mean, we have, we go get blood tests and then the, the doctor reads though that lab sheet as a practitioner and tells us, hey, your cholesterol is high. Um, you've got high blood pressure. No different than, than the, the soil health. There are things that can get out of balance there. We talked about drainage. That, that could be one of them. And then a myriad of, of different uh, soil fertility related things could be out of balance that from speaking of soil health that could get us in a spot to where we're less productive. So mm. the buzzword of soil health is it means a lot and and most oftentimes we'll find the people that talk about soil health really have no context of what it what they're even referring to so <laughs> i mean that that's that's the facts of it yeah and uh it's frustrating for us because you, the, these buzzwords are are important because the consumer every person you know listening to this podcast is a consumer of the product that we help produce yeah. Well, those buzzwords are becoming more and more important. The soul health people want to understand, you know, they want to know and believe that what they eat, it comes from a sustainable place and a healthy yeah. place. Well, the, the American farmer has been thinking that way for years and years and years and years. It's nothing new. Um, Cause if, if the practices that we were doing on the landscape weren't sustainable, we would go out of business. Yeah. So by far, the, the person that wants to be that wants that to be sustainable the most are the guys that are working that that ground. Gotcha. Um, so soil health can you know, it's it can be very complex, but it's the purposes of a, a food plotter. That I would think about soil health as just what we're talking about from a production side. What can I identify as I'm thinking about my food plots? What can I identify that could be a limiting factor that could not have me at peak performance, yeah. be limited my production? Because that's really what it's all about is transferring the, the nutrients and the energy that the soil has through the plants into that deer, turkey, whatever we're managing for. Um, that's really what it's about. So the, the, the more efficient that I can get that nutrients transfer to take place, the more successful I'm going to be. Yeah. Um, Here, you know, it, here's a question it, for you. Do you feel wait. like we know more about soil health? It seems like if you go down the rabbit hole of soil health on YouTube and Google and reading research papers, it feels like we're learning more and more each each year. There's something else about soil health and and the relationships of the uh, micro, uh, the microbes in the soil. Do you feel like we know now today more above ground than we know below ground? A hundred percent. So I feel like, and that was, I guess, a, a pointed question because I've got a. I was hoping you'd answer that way because I feel like um, we know a lot that's going on above the ground. We know what's good most of the time. We know what's pretty good. We know what's pretty bad. You can look at native species versus invasive species in that aspect. But I feel like when we start going into soil health, it's such a new thing as far as 
we've been researching it forever and ever and ever, and there's just so much about soil that I think a guy like myself jumping into the, the hole of soil health to start researching, I'm not sure I'm ever going to find the bottom of that hole and, and completely understand what I even started for. Um, and I feel like as a food plotter, that's one of the dangers of going, I'm, I care about soil health. Let me jump into YouTube and all this research and these books. And all of a sudden you come out at the end, you're like, I learned a whole lot of stuff, but I don't even know where to begin or what this even serves me for. Yeah. 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 No, that's a good point. And you know, the, the interactions between all the things that are happening below the soil surface is so complex that we'll, I don't think we'll ever get our, our minds wrapped around that from the interactions between, you know, the, the microbiome and the, all the biological things and how that affects the, the plant available soil nutrients and the interactions between those. Yeah. Um, it's a very, very complex subject that I don't think anybody, any one person um, has an understanding of it. Well, sidebar conversation that Matt and I have a lot or has has occurred more than once is that on on the other side of on the other side of this life when we're when we're sitting around with Jesus we hope that he explains the stuff that we got really nerdy on here on on earth and he'll explain it to us. I'm not sure that's going to happen but maybe he'll he'll share that with us one day. That what I hope I'm I hope I'm there for that conversation. <laughs> I, I know where I'm going to be but I'm hope I'm right there with you around Jesus when he's explaining it. But I frankly I'm not sure we're going to care about microbes when we're up there but um <laughs> good point. <laughs> so anyway, um well, this is uh, okay. So let's let's try to rein it in on the elementary side. So let's just say we have and go very basic, and we have very low fertility. My soil is very poor, um, and over the course of ten years, I've done certain practices that have made my soil very fertile. I've followed soil amendment or soil test recommendations, and I've changed in very basic terms, very poor soil to very healthy and fertile soil. What would me as a food plotter notice in that? Yeah. And so I think the the first things you would start to see would be increased production. Um, You'd be seeing more tonnage or more yield per acre of whatever forage or, or crop that we'd be growing. I think you would see that first especially in in the in the contrast that you described um you'd be seeing something that wouldn't be as evident just walking across the field but the quality of that forage would be much greater that nutrient transfer that we talked about would be much greater and so whatever whatever animals we're managing for that are that are foraging on those plots would be much more efficient in gaining the nutrients that they need to be to maximize their health and production. So those are the, I think those are the immediate things that you would see. Uh, and that's really what it's all about is, is on managing these, these plots or, or fields in that manner is, is how can we get more efficient in that nutrient transfer? Okay. So if, if that's the case, we, we've fertilized or we've, we've amended the soil to where we have very healthy soil, we have more vegetation, and that vegetation that's there has more nutrients within each bite. Is a deer, man, I'm going to use a very vague term here, so bear with me, but is, are those plants, because they're more nutrient-rich, more filling 
as in they're not going to have to forage as much in your food plot to get the nu- nutrients they need, or are they just going to continue to to browse in that field like like normal? Yeah, that's a good question. That's probably outside the scope that I'm, you know, an expert in talking about. Not that I'm an expert in anything, but I will tell you some observations that I've made is that in areas where we've had an opportunity to work, um, where we had, you know, as you call it, poor soils, I would probably call it just low fertility areas, low uh, areas with low uh, nutrient levels. And then a, a situation where we may fertilize a portion of that that field and not fertilize another portion and then just making observations from the deer stand where are the deer feeding and inevitably they are right there i remember when i was a kid um growing up in in panola county my number one trick during bow season was take a sack of triple 13 in acres and acres and acres of cutover i could go to a spot in in a quarter acre size sling that triple 13 out like i was feeding chickens in a in a in a honeysuckle patch and i could make every deer in that cutover feed right there <laughs> so there's something there's something going on inherently inside that deer that they know that it's all about efficiency yeah. if i can take if i can take one bite right here to meet my needs versus over there it takes me 3 there's something in them that understands that, that knows that, and they can sense it. I've seen it time and time again. Gotcha. That's very interesting, and I know there's probably going to be some triple thirteen bags sold because of that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's talk soil sampling and why soil sampling is important. Do you feel yeah. like in a food plot world, and I've been guilty of this many years. Um, I mean, if you were going to throw it out there, I'd say probably less than 50% of the people that we see here talk to do soil tests on their food plots. But how much of a waste of time do you feel like? If I was like, hey, Mitt, by the way, you're going to be able to plant your food plots the next three years, but no soil tests and no soil amendments. Are you going to be able feel comfortable or do you feel like it's a waste of your time? Yeah. So I, I don't know if wasted time is, is that may be a, that may be a stretch, but certainly I feel inadequate and ill-informed without a, a soil test. Um, now there's, there's the soil complex. It's not going to, we're not going to make a change overnight and we're not going to, our lack of management is not going to change it overnight. So the, these moves take time. I mean, it's a it's a chemical reaction that's taking place when we add fertilizer, and it takes um, some time for that those nutrients to be removed. And so it's not an immediate thing. But if we're if we're making educated um, decisions based on soil fertility, a component of that has to be results from a soil testing report um, to help us identify um the the nutrient levels and we know this because science has shown that we have to have x amount of each nutrient to maximize plant health well when we send that that soil sample to the lab they can analyze against those extractable nutrients and then they can convert that to to equivalent of pounds per acre of nutrients 
in that soil. And so science has shown us that I have to have X amount of nutrients for that maximum productivity or adequate productivity. And then we can deduce, all right, I need, I'm deficient here. I can add this amount of nutrients back, which we, which we generally uh, applied in a, in a, in organic fertilizer. Gotcha. Very cool. Um, how quickly, you know, on average, do you feel like, because it seems like when I was in college that they would say that to build organic matter was going to take at least 10 years to even get it at, at, at one percentage. But do you feel like when it comes to organic matter and 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 overall micro and macronutrients, if a guy's got relatively low fertility, there I switch it up for you and, and tried to go a little bit more in depth than than poor soil. But he's got low fertility. How quickly, if he's bought the farm, how many years do you think it would take him with the appropriate amendments to get it switched and, and headed in a very productive state? So, from a, a soil organic matter uh, standpoint, a, a lot of that is contingent on just where we live. Um, here in the South where we have mild winters and, you know, hot summers, the, 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 the speed at which that organic matter or dead and decaying plant and animal material is what organic matter is. The speed at which that decays and turns back into, to, um, you know, soil is much greater than in the Midwest or up North. And so some of the, the, organic matter levels are just determined inherently on where we are. Um, are there things that we can do to increase that? Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, the, the cover crops, you know, going back to a production standpoint, we've gotten uh, growers that are planting much more cover crops, to try to keep green material on uh, outside of our cash crop growing season. And that adds organic matter. Organic matter is very important. Um, especially from a soil nutrient standpoint um, because it functions in, in soil structure and soil structure is the, is the difference between solids and pore space and, and, uh, and the, the soil. And so th- that, that allows for nutrient and, and uh, water holding capacity within the soil. So organic matter is very, very important. And so anything that we can do to increase organic matter, generally we're increasing productivity. Um, so there's some practices that we can that we can do to either discourage or influence or encourage um, increased organic matter. As a as a deer hunter, a food plot guy, and he all he does over the course of ten years. I'm going to go back to a question I asked you uh, a few few questions ago. But let's just say a, a deer hunter he sets out and he goes, all I care about in my food plots are organic matter, and he does everything he can over the course of five years or 10 years to whatever it may be. And he improves his percentage of organic matter by two to 3%. Do you feel like he's going to notice any change in his deer herd health? Only if organic matter was the most limiting factor. And I would argue that most times not. And so we'll, we'll talk, we'll talk through that and kind of what I'm, what I'm thinking there and and the way that I'm approaching that. Um, But just picking one thing to focus on or even the thing that made my neighbors 
food plots successful may or may not be yours. Yeah. And so we've got to be we've got to be very intentional that we're focusing on the right thing, the one the most limiting factor, the one that's that that is going to make the difference. That's the one we need to be focused on. Well, that's a I, I guess before we jump into that, let's skip ahead on my notes and say one of the most common things, and I think one of the first the first time that we consulted with you, uh, Liebig's Law of the Minimum got brought up. How often do you find yourself explaining Liebig's Law of the Minimum to growers or food plot guys? Well, Justin von Liebig, rarely, but his concept, often. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, what Liebig's Law of, of the Minimum is, and it stays, and this is something that that. Justice von Liebig from Germany back in the early 1800s, he developed this concept. And the way that he stated it was growth is dictated not by total resources available, but the scarcest of those resources. So if you'll think about that a little bit, the concept, I talk about it often. So a good analogy that that I like to think about, and I had a professor in college that that kind of he, he, he pitched it this way and it made sense. I understood it is that if you'll think about a five gallon bucket as our field, as our production, and we have, we drill holes in that bucket from top to bottom. Well, we can pour water into that bucket and think about the, the, the capacity of that bucket to hold water as our production. So we can pour water in that bucket as much as we want to, and we're only going to be able to fill that that bucket up until the lowest hole. That's going to be our maximum production. And so let's let's think through that in terms of soil fertility. All right. So we've got a field that has a very low pH which is probably arguably one of the most significant soil factors that we actually can control that would, would limit production. So we have a low pH, but the guy down to co-op said, Hey man, you need, you need to put out some uh, triple superphosphate. Well, we could apply triple superphosphate until it's knee deep out there and it's not going to make an impact on that food plot until we fix the pH because pH is the most limiting factor. When we stop that hole up in the five gallon bucket, then we can hold water up to the next limiting factor up to the next hole. And so that's what we need to be busy about doing. Whether we're talking about, you know, production agriculture, food plot systems, or really habitat management in general is what is our lowest hole in the bucket. That's where we need to be focused on. So we can talk about, you know, organic matter and soil health and all these different amendments and whatever micronutrients versus, you know, pH. Until we identify the lowest hole in that bucket, nothing else matters. How would a food plot guy go about finding the lowest hole in that bucket? Where do you even begin? Yeah, so that's that's a really great question. And uh, the, the place where I would start and outside, well, the, the first place you would start is just common sense. And, and look, 
with the world we live in today, I completely understand that common sense is a superpower. But I'm I'm going to assume <laughs> for purpose of this conversation that everybody listening to your podcast already have that common sense. So I'm just going to start there as my baseline. <clears throat> so picking your picking your areas, for, you know, in context of, of food plotting, is you know the the site. Number one, is it if I got it on top of a bald knob that I'm going to be drought prone? If I got it in the swamp where it's going to drown out, make sure I've got, you know, those obvious things, those limiting factors, I'm assuming they're already fixed. So the next spot that I'm going to go to will be a soil sample. And then the, the, the way that I pull my soil samples I'm trying to identify, I'm thinking in terms of trying to identify that most limiting factor. And so if if you spend any time, you know, in a production field or even a food plot, you know that that, that corner over there next to my deer stand, um, it's it's not as productive. The, the, the clover wheat is, is smaller in height, uh, but I've got a spot right over there, you know, out from that cedar tree over there that the clover always grows real tall. Well, that would be a good place to start trying to understand what the limiting factor is. Cause obviously there's, there's a difference between those two areas. So pull a soil sample in both. And then when those, that analysis comes back, then we can compare and contrast those two spots. And if I see a nutrient that's all else being equal, the nutrient, I got a nutrient that's low in the weak area inadequate or high in, in the good area, then just deductive reasoning, I can start seeing from a soil fertility aspect that limiting factor. Very cool. That makes a lot of sense. I don't I, I, I myself have never done that. It's always do you do the average, take your crisscross grid or your figure eight grid across the field, get your average and send the whole test in for the entire field rather than going site specific and keying in on the most productive area versus the weak area and going okay well this is what's missing what are some so that, go ahead well, now i was just going to say that you know to expound on that just a little bit further the way that i'm pulling my soil samples and the way i'm thinking about managing those food plots is any difference that that i can see or are aware of I'm going to separate that from a management standpoint, at least from a soil sampling standpoint. And so any differences that I see in topography, I'm going to pull the, the high side of the field versus the low side of the field, maybe maybe a, a little bit different. Depending on topography, I've got extreme topography, then I'm certainly going to do that. Um, soil type differences. Um, you know, the further you move away from the creek, oftentimes you'll see the, the, the soil color, the texture starting to change. I'll, I'll you know, pull those separately. Um, any ob observations that you've made between weak spots and strong spots, um, really good spots um, um, versus the weak spots, like we just talked about. Any of those, I'm gonna I'm gonna composite those samples, pull the cores in those areas and composite them, and keep those separate, label those separately, so I can I can start seeing and 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 reasoning through what could possibly be those limiting factors. What are some of the most common limiting factors that you've found or yeah, that a, from, a food plot guy would find? Yeah, well, ironically, it's it's generally not soil fertility related. It's going to be some of the other factors that we've already talked about okay. you know, from some of the, the, the failures that have happened. And so depending on where these food plots are, if, if you know, if you move into some the, the Ozark areas of, of, 
of southern Missouri um, that's not a traditional row crop area, absolutely soil fertility could be a limiting factor. Um, but in, in the Midwest and in, in the agriculture regions of, of the Southeast, generally speaking, soil fertility is probably not going to be the first place that I'm going to look to increase productivity. There's generally some spots that I, there's some things that I can do to increase productivity even before we start talking about soil fertility. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, talk a little bit, since we're still on this, the difference between macro and micronutrients and why that really, uh, I think we've kind of shifted in. And when It seems like when we talk soil health, we start diving into micro more than macro. So talk a little bit about the difference between the two and why it's important to, to know and manage accordingly. Yeah. So the, the terminology macro and micronutrients are just that. It's pretty intuitive. Um, the difference between the two is, is really simple. Macronutrients are acquired in larger amounts than micronutrients. Um, the names of the two categories um, don't imply that one type of nutrients is more important than the another. It just means that, that more micronutrients must be present in the soil than micronutrients for adequate plant production yield. Gotcha. And so we, we, we see it all the time. Um, and, and the industry really keys in on that because it's something different. Maybe oh, I can sell a solution in a bag. We love to talk about micronutrients. Hey, if you apply this micro pack, it'll, it'll, you know, green your plots up, give you more production, yada, yada. Well, we see that a lot in production row crop and in food plots. Um, and that's 100% true if that's your limiting factor. And that's why I, when, you, when you think through all these soil amendments, all our fertility programs in regards to, to Liebig's Law of the Minimum, it really starts to become clear that just because my neighbor over there got a response from an application of boron really has nothing to do with whether I'll get a response from boron. Mm. And he did get a response from boron. You can take it to the bank that that was his most limiting factor or one of his most limiting factors. It was limiting. I'll say that. And but that's not assume that, that boron will be limiting at the quantity uh, needed for adequate plant, you know, health yeah on your on your piece of property so how often i mean i think about this because i'm guilty of this hardcore i sent over my soil test which i'd love to reference here in a little bit with you mitt but how many times do you think a guy gets his soil test and he's like whoa i got some things that are really high and some things that are really low and he goes down to his local fertilizer plant or hardware store and he sees a bag of let's just say uh it's it's potassium. And he's like, oh, I need potassium. I'm low in that. And he goes out and he puts down the adequate amount. Let's just say it says we need to put down, I don't know, uh, a certain amount of pounds per acre. And he puts that down and he sees no difference. Even though he was low, how, I mean, I mean it seems like something that a lot of people would face with that is you, you like, well, yep. I'm, I'm low in five of the five things on my, on my graph that I got from a soil lab and I found one of them, maybe this will help and it doesn't yep. do anything. 
happens all the time. And that, that's a, that's a great segue into that, that point is that if, if you apply that nutrient, even if it is low and don't see any response, don't get any response in your forage, guess what? That wasn't your lowest hole in the bucket. Ah, yeah. We've got, and and we may not necessarily come up with what the lowest hole in the bucket, but you just eliminated that being the lowest hole in the bucket because you didn't get a response, even though it could show that that was a, a, from an extracted nutrient soil test standpoint, it showed low on the soil test. It still wasn't your most limiting factor in your example. Gotcha. So I've got, I don't know, half or a dozen soil samples here. And if you're hopefully still at your desk, you can scroll through some of them. But I'm looking at one uh, in particular. It's got about the most fitting name in the world for the food plot based on the soil test. But it's a food plot we call Fiasco. <laughs> <laughs> and it is, it is. Uh, I mean, when you look at, uh, you look at, phosphorus it's very low when you look at um, potassium it's medium when you look at magnesium it's low calcium low sulfur boron don't even show up zinc is low and then i've got uh, manganese which is very high like through off the chart and then iron and copper don't even show up on the graph when you look at a soil sample like that and the the ph is five and, you know, you go back, this is a slight south-facing slope, heavy tillage. I can't remember the first year we ever planted it. It was probably around 2,000. Um, yeah, right in probably around 2,000. Two-bottom plow, plow it up. Then we cr- cross it back again, plowed it some more, try to smooth it out, and it sat there and bake. And then we never had, you know, we didn't have the money to go buy a bunch of fertilizer. So we were just like, whatever, throw, throw the seed out. The first couple of years, we had pretty good response. And then over the course of time, it got worse and worse and worse. And you can look at the soil test and see that a lot of that, I mean, in this food plot, a lot of the nutrients was mined out or what grew. Animals ate, carried off, and pooped it out somewhere else, and it never really returned to the soil. I don't know. It seems like a pretty common, uh, this soil test right here is, is probably one of the worst ones I've seen, but I've seen some really bad ones uh, that might be even worse than this. But if you can pull that up and you look at that, I think a lot of guys will get a soil test and say, I don't even know where to begin. Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking at fiasco here, fiasco eight. Yes. And uh, you're right. Um, some of these levels, um, are very very low and so all else being equal we've we've eliminated the common sense limiting factors the next obvious place is to look at soil fertility and i'm really keying in on number one the the phosphorus levels the p levels and then the ph um and so that's so soil test categories most labs will break those down into five categories a very low low medium high and a very high they'll have different language for that yours says low medium adequate high and very high but regardless they'll generally be in five different soil test categories and so they'll make if a soil sample falls into a low category 
it gets X amount of nutrients in a medium, somewhat less, and adequate, even somewhat less. Then you move into a high and a very high where they may not make any recommendation from additional um, fertilizer application. And so I'm from the looking for the most limiting factor. I'm certainly going to key in on the ones that are falling in the, in the low soil test category. So on in fiasco, I'm keying in on, on P. Um, another, what jumps out at me is, uh, is your soil pH. And so in order of priority, when you're thinking about soil amendments, I have, I prioritize what I'm going to work on. I do this in production. I do this in my food, food plots. The number one thing that I'm going to work on first is my pH. I want my pH in a range that is somewhere between six and seven, ideally. And what pH, and without going way down in, in the weeds, the reason pH is important is basically that's that's a, a algorithmic function of acidity or alkalinity of your soil, how acid it is or how basic it is. Seven is neutral. And so the lower the number, it's a scale from one to 14, the, the lower you get from seven, the more acidic it is. So a, a, a six is more, uh, um, it's more basic or less acidic than a five. A four is more acidic than a, than a, than a six. So when I, I see, the reason that's important is because at different pH levels, and again, thinking about the soil chemistry side and without having to, you know, going way down in the weeds, from a soil chemistry standpoint, nutrients are available more or less depending on the pH of the soil. And so I can have a adequate amount of phosphorus, per se, my pH be really low, and that phosphorus is not available for plant uptake. I could simply move my pH from four to six and a half with a lime application and then without adding any more phosphorus more phosphorus is available for plant uptake perfect that makes perfect sense so in order of priority i'm thinking about ph first and then my micro my macronutrients second which would be the, the most important ones are going to be um, phosphorus and potassium, P and K, which your soil amendments will be um, triple super um, phosphate and potash. We know it as potash. Um, those would be the two that I would think about. And then the the other macros and micronutrients would be the my last consideration from a, a soil amendment to increase productivity, thinking through the, the lowest hole in the bucket. So would it scare you when you look at this, you know, uh, by the way, I have a soil sample from 2020 to kind of correlate with what's occurred and how much has changed. But when you look at that pot, do you get more concerned over the fact that the levels are low versus the manganese is very high? Yeah. So, no, I don't. And, and so there's there's a lot of 
you know, complex interactions that can go on between nutrients. So in some cases, you can get um, a, a level of, of nutrient that is creates some problems on the high side. Or there's some nutrient interactions where the, the, the more of this particular nutrient could displace the plant availability of this particular nutrient. That's going way down in the weeds. We see that very rarely from a production standpoint, and it's almost insignificant to even think about. Gotcha. Can it happen? Absolutely it can. But before I get concerned about something like that, I'm going to be thinking about my lowest limiting factors in respect to the ones that are easiest to fix. Gotcha. Okay. So I I, th I think it's called, because I research it, but do you consider that like manganese toxicity when it gets that high? Or is Correct. It, okay. Yeah, manganese toxicity, and that'll be, you know, a stunning, um, uh, the inner node length will shorten depending on the crop. Um, you'll get some discoloration, uh, depending on, you know, crop specific will be the symptomology. Um, but yeah, manganese toxicity, we see it occasionally, um, you know, on the production, production fields, mostly on, you know, ground that had been leveled or, or, you know, had a, uh, a lot of dirt moved on it for land leveling purposes and we're getting down into the subsurface, yeah. um, soil. that's where you can start picking up some of those manganese toxicities. Huh. I wonder if that's, you know, the deep, deep tillage that we were doing, if that's what caused it. But if you look across the farm, every food plot and the soil test has high manganese. Yeah. So, you know, and, and that's some things just that's the way God created where you are. I mean, and, and these nutrients are coming from a source of the parent material of that soil. Yeah. And so whatever that parent material was is inherently higher or lower in, in these nutrients and minerals. Gotcha. And so in, in a lot of cases, that's just, that's just inherently goes with where you are. I'm going to chalk it up to the, 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 the curse living in a cursed land. <laughs> that's probably right. <laughs> so three years later, I have another soil test, same field, same process, probably the same bucket and soil probe that I used. And, the only thing that changed is we had added a um, couple ton of lime, and I could say give or take, but my dad was the one adding it on a on a hobby day where he was just wanting to ride the tractor, and he added a bunch of lime to it. So, frankly, I have no idea really how much he added, but he added a, a good amount. And our pH now, I, I forgot to send this one to you, but our pH now this past spring was 5.5, so we'd gone up um, – a good amount and now we're out of manganese taxity toxicity it's still high but all of a sudden over the course of the one soil test to the next iron is also high which if you remember it wasn't even it wasn't even registered on the other uh soil test um and so do you i i know we talked about it pre-show but you place a very high um, value on using the same soil uh, test site wherever you send it over the course of the years. Um, just, I guess, so you have very similar reports. Is that why? Or talk yeah. a little bit about that. 
Yeah, and so um, you know, there's there's always a, a, a that's always a hot topic and and a, a debatable topic about soil testing labs. Um, I really wouldn't get hung up on that that very much because really the the differences between soil testing labs will will generally be generally speaking will be extraction nutrient extraction methods and the way they present that um, the the nutrients on a per acre standpoint. So a lot of them will be pounds per acre, some may be parts per million. Um, they have different extraction methods. Overall, I wouldn't spend a lot of time with that. I would get me a reputable lab and I would be consistent with that. So then you can you can compare your samples over time, year after year, and can observe some of these changes that you're referring to, um, you know, after your dad's line. Um, that manganese, is a is a great example of why you may have seen that um adam on your on your soil test or manganese went down after a, a a lime application it's because manganese is one of those nutrients where the more acidic the more available manganese comes the higher the ph the less available manganese comes becomes gotcha. that makes sense? yeah and so as you're as you're increasing your pH through that lime application, that's why you're observing your manganese levels starting to come down. Gotcha. Makes perfect sense. Clear as mud. <laughs> so uh, I'm trying to move along, and I appreciate your patience. You've, you've spent a good amount of time with us on this. Um, let's talk, you know, when we go to the soil test, are there any kind of other, any kind of tips, tricks to get the quickest return? I always say that our business model is to try to assist landowners to get there, to meet their goals with the least amount of money as quickly as possible. So 80 yeah. grit management me on these soil tests and how you would go about, um, in case somebody missed it, um, or probably even I missed it, you might've explained it, but I'm so focused on trying to, let's make my food plots more productive, more fertile. And fiasco, for example, what are your first steps? You know, I'm going to be planting soybeans and, and probably some diversity in the next, uh, sometime in early May. So we've got a, basically a little over a month. What would you do from now till then to try to ensure, knowing a month's probably not going to show a quick difference, but I'm trying to plan ahead for the next hunting season. What would you start adding to a food plot to correct it? Yeah. So, well, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to try to, to uh, apply some just common sense application to, you know, boots across that field and make sure that I have the, the, the limiting factors that I can control from, um, you know, whether it be drainage, whatever factors there, I'm going to, I'm going to start there make sure that I've eliminated all the common sense limiting factors yep. next i'm gonna pull a soil sample when i get the soil sample back then that's when i'm going to start going through the the process of the first thing i'm going to look at is ph and so if i have a budget that i can afford to spend you know a hundred dollars an acre on my food plots or fifty dollars an acre on my food plots whatever that may be the first place that i'm going to spend my money is going to be in correcting my pH. I'm trying to move it into a, a six or a seven. Now you're going to run into some soils 
that'll have pHs that'll be greater than seven. They're a lot more. It, it's a lot more effort and cost prohibitive to move the pH down as it is up. Up is just a simple lime application. Down is much more difficult. Gotcha. So uh, the good news is most of the the, the nutrients that that are the biggest factors in, in crop production are on that that neutral to a little bit higher. So the the, the more um, limiting factors are low pHs. So that's the good news. So that's the first place that I'm going to spend my money. All right. Fine. Money left left over from after I correct my pH, and I'm going in order of impact that we're going to make. I'm going to look at, at phosphorus and potassium, P and K. And generally the soil test um, results will come with a soil test recommendation, crop specific. When you fill out your form, it'll generally ask you, you know, what species do you intend to plant this next growing season? And then it'll come back with a recommendation according to that those crop needs. And so I'm going to be looking at my P and K which looking at a, a, a like a triple 13 um, bag of fertilizer, there'll be three numbers on there, Tri- 13, 13, 13. Well, the first 13 is, is how many pounds of nitrogen per 100 pounds of fertilizer. The second 13 will be P, which will be phosphorus. That number represents pounds of, of P per 100 pounds of fertilizer of material and then that k the last 13 in the triple 13 is the potash the amount of k per hundred pounds pounds of k per hundred pounds of material so that, basically if i bought two bags 50 pound bags and i have 100 pounds of that material i have 13 pounds of each correct and so the, the for example triple superphosphate will be zero forty six zero. yep so Hundred pounds of triple superphosphate. I have out forty-six pounds of P uh, potash. The number is zero zero sixty. If you went and bought a bag of potash, gotcha. and so those recommendations will will come with the soil test um, results. Those recommendations will be tagged in there somewhere. And so after after my pH correction with a lime application, P and K will be my next, and then only after those. Those two spots are, are are adequate. Am I going to even be thinking about the micros? Yeah. So I'm looking at that that soil test, and I'm saying it's saying to do 120 pounds of phosphate per acre, and it's about a two acre field, I think. Yep. Um, and and uh, so I'm looking at 240 pounds of phosphate to get that uh, to kind of get the 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 poundage i need per acre correct yeah it makes you go whoa you got a lot of material to put down when you start looking at it like that you know yep yeah so you know one one thing to keep in mind and again it it can get it can get complicated if you let it yeah um you've got some notes i don't know if your viewers will be able to see the same things that uh that i'm looking at right here um but I don't know who did this. Uh, did this math? Oh, don't don't even. I went to Mansfield High. Don't don't start referencing the math. This was 2016 too. Come on <laughs> now, it's off, isn't it? 
Yeah, it, it's off. And so what I was going to suggest is that when you're looking at a soil fertility recommendations, oftentimes it'll be um, expressed in um, either elemental nutrient or the fertilize. So this is this is going to be elemental. So 110 pounds of phosphate is what you need. Well, keep in mind, there are a lot of different sources of phosphate. You know, we just talked about one that was uh, at 13% uh, phosphate in that triple 13. Yeah. We got another in the triple superphosphate, it's 46%. Mm. So most labs will tell you, will communicate to you those nutrients based on the elemental nutrient needed. And you have to convert it to fertilize. Gotcha. And so your example on, let's see, fiasco. Let me find fiasco so we can be on the same page. What? A um, all right, so fiasco is calling for 120 pounds of P2O5. 120 pounds, and you'll divide that by the, the, the percentage of nutrient in whatever fertilizer source that we choose. Say we're going to choose triple super. That'd be 46%. Uh, P2O5. So your need is 120 pounds. Divide that by 0. 0.46. 120 divided by 0. 0.46. That's 260 pounds of fertilizer of, of triple superphosphate. Well, there you go. Per acre. Yeah, 260 pounds, you said? Or 240? Yes. Oh. 260. That's a lot of that's a lot of material. You got a low soil test level. Yep. Is there a problem? Because I know a lot of guys, and I'm this way myself. Because I 80 grit management is not just the recommendations. It's kind of how I live my life when it comes to the to the farm. Is we're just trying to knock her back in shape. And so a lot of guys would probably say, I don't, I don't want to. This isn't a five year plan. This is a two year plan. And they'll go in and get every pound they need of all this stuff and go and throw it out on the on the ground. Is there going to be a problem with that amount of material going into the soil that quickly? No, not not from a, a, a soil nutrient. Generally speaking, all there's always outliers to that. I mean, um, but but generally speaking, no. The only the only place that may could run into trouble that we've seen before is the, the amount of lime required. And generally, if you have some really heavy soil, high clay content, and a low, low pH, it's going to require a lot, a lot of lime to make that change. And I've seen as many as seven, eight, nine thousand 9,000 pounds of lime needed per acre. We'll, we won't put that out at one time. We'll generally cap it at you know five six thousand pounds yeah and then next year put the balance out gotcha gotcha makes sense huh well it is a, a very in-depth world it's probably why it took us three years to get in here uh, and talk soil um soil tests soil health as much as i know you love that term now um, I'll be sure I text each week with another soil health question, but, um, out of all this, you know, is, is this, you know, this is right in your wheelhouse. 
But for a guy who's just really kind of thinking about it, give him some quick tips, advice on just moving forward from now till next deer season on what he can do to, you know, not change the world, but get his place in a direction that's that's uh, going to be more productive. Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, if if we've got established food plots, it makes it a little bit more difficult. But um, starting at very base level, I'm going to I'm going to be really careful about where I choose to put my um, food plots because and even you know thinking through that standpoint if I've got a new property I'm trying to develop it may behoove you to pull some soil samples before you even decide where to put the food plots and that could influence based on soil fertility levels that could even potentially influence where I put it um, and again that's some, some you know we need to apply some common sense approach um, to those locations, but that could, that could go in all else being equal. That could go into a deciding factor on, um, where I even put my food pots. If I got, if, if, if I could accomplish my goals equally as well with two different food plot locations, one has a pH of six, seven, and the other one has a pH of four, four. I'm not going to choose that one. <laughs> yeah. Because that's going to take a lot of it'll take a lot more work to to get there. That's right. Based on your experience, how quickly have you been able to take a four four food plot and get it to? Let's just say, because I know this is true for a lot of landowners, is mm-hmm. especially in timber country. Outside of getting a dozer in, they're like, "Well, these are the little openings that are here. This is where my food plots are. I'll rearrange yep. everything else accordingly." So I've got mm-hmm. a. I did a soil test. Unfortunately, it's a five. How quickly or how many years has it taken you to get that up to a uh, closer to a seven or a six six? Yeah, yeah, you can you can generally do that with, within a growing season, and there's some other factors that, that influence that. I mean, you remember it, it's a chemical reaction that's going on by doing that, and so yeah. the better that I can incorporate that lime into the soil at depth, um, the quicker that reaction is going to take place. Yeah. Um, putting lime on top of the ground and not incorporating it in, the slower that reaction is going to take place. Um, so, you know, again, it's, it's just some, some common sense approach when you think about it as a as a soil chemical reaction. Um, you know, the better that I incorporate the quality of the lime, the, the fineness of the lime will will determine that um, low quality lime that has some, you know, very coarse textured lime. It's going to be, you know. It's, it's harder for a, a block of ice to melt than crushed ice. Same same thing about his lime. So the finer the lime, the quicker the reaction. Gotcha. All those factors will go into play. But generally speaking, um, you know, we can make those a, a, a normal amendment and a normal change can occur during one growing season. <clears throat> it's not going to be as as quick as a, a, a nutrient application. They can nearly be available um, you know, within days or weeks for nutrient uptake with well, a fertilizer application, the lime takes generally longer. So if you were doing it ahead of a, a summertime crop, you'd want to lime out in the fall before. Yep. Gotcha. Well, that's awesome, Mitt. We appreciate it so much for coming on and, and dumping your knowledge on us. Um, and and certainly helping me out. This is uh, definitely something I'm trying to move forward on and get more involved in and focus on more uh, just in trying to correct my poor soils 
Um, and I, I will certainly share probably the thumbnail for this podcast will be that fiasco food plot sold test so people can see just how bad it was. So um, right. anyway, Mitt, we appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Man, yeah. Let's talk about something more interesting this time. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Adam.